All right, if you have a, a Bible, please turn to Ephesians chapter 1, and we will look at the first 14 verses. As Pastor Brian was saying, uh, my wife and I are so grateful we've been coming here for the last uh, month, but even prior to that, I feel like I have known the church uh, so well. Uh, Pastor Brian and I attend basics every year. I've known him for four years now. We, we have a, a great time of fellowship there, and then with his connection and with so many other people's connections to the rescue mission as well, the church is well known throughout the rescue mission. Uh, I also am very good friends with a guy that has preached here before, Pastor Ron Starcher. And uh, so after he found out that I was going to be preaching here, I asked if he could, you know, give me any advice or anything like that. And he said, if you open with a joke about John Tiger, it will go a long way. And so I said, well, I'm, you know, I can't do that. And he's like, you're right. You're a much nicer person than I am. So, so but he, did, he does send his regards uh, to everyone here, and he thanks you for uh, the support that you've given the rescue mission as well. And so, as Pastor Brian said, yeah, my name is Brad. I am married to Christine. Uh, we live in Canfield currently. I'm going to uh, Midwestern Baptist, working on my MDiv, and uh, sort of the passion behind what I'm doing right now is uh, my new ministry. I started a couple weeks ago called Theology Nights. Uh, I, would, I, would, um, I would have you check it out, theologynights.com, and I look forward to interacting with you. And as Pastor Brian says, my passion is theology and scripture and, and helping others grow in that same passion and love of scripture as well. And so today's text, we'll look at Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verse 1 through 14. Uh, Let us read that, and we'll ask God's blessing upon our time. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Father, we pray that your blessing would be upon our time together this morning, that we would leave here encouraged by the scriptures, that we might go encourage others through scripture as well. We pray that you would speak to us through your word, that we might treasure it and behold it, that we might fall in love with it more as we read through it this morning. Pray for your help to speak clearly, that Christ might be glorified through our words and our thoughts this morning, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So there'll be three main parts we'll look at today. Uh, The first six verses, we see this beautiful plan of God's uh, salvation that is offered to us freely, and then in verses 7 through 10, we see his amazing purpose of redemption, and then lastly, in 11 through 14, we see our inheritance or our prize that Paul talks about in his letters couple of bits of information about the book of Ephesians. We're familiar that Paul wrote this book. Uh, we're familiar that 
Uh, he wrote this from, from prison because he says in chapter 3, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Uh, a little known fact about the book of Ephesians, this is one of his most general letters that he has written at this point in the New Testament. He offers no specific information to anyone at the, uh, at the, the group of, of the uh, Ephesus believers. This is actually written to a lot of Christians, not just specifically one church, but it would have been written to all the churches that were in homes in the city of Ephesus. So his message is more towards Christians as a whole, as opposed to a letter like the 1st or 2nd Corinthians that was directed primarily to a church. This is a general letter and a great letter for all of us to learn through today. And so as we move on, we see verse 3 through 6, which gives us this beautiful plan of salvation from God. And it doesn't take much as we read through these first 14 verses. And I'll quickly highlight a couple of things of what the main focus is in this text. Look at this. It says that, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Christ. Blessed us in Christ. He chose us that we should be holy. In love He predestined us. His glorious grace In him we have redemption. He lavished upon us. He set forth in Christ. All things in him. We have obtained an inheritance in him so that we were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So behind everything what Paul is talking about here, everything that is worthy of praise is God. He leaves no room for any of us to come to this scripture and say, I can elevate myself or self-glorification because I have done some sort of work in order to receive these things. It's the exact opposite. He even sets the theme for the entire letter with this statement, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's also important to note that Paul says God has already done these things. He has blessed us already with everything spiritual. There is no need to look for anything else because Paul says it has already happened. And so he contrasts here this in the heavenly places to compare that to the earthly success of money or wealth or power or in Paul's immediate context, land, because land would have been one of the big things of the day. Now, it does not mean that those things that God gives us have no impact on our life today, but what he is saying is a right understanding of these things that God has blessed us with creates better relationships and better behavior on how we live today and interact with those that are in the church. The key blessing is found in this beautiful phrase, and this phrase sort of sums up the theme of the New Testament. He says, in Christ. These two words describe our union with Jesus Christ, that we were made one with him. We once belonged to the line of Adam. We once participated in the life of sin, and thus we would be sentenced to eternal punishment away from Jesus Christ. But now, for those of us that have exercised faith in Jesus Christ, we are joined together with him and we participate in his death, burial, and resurrection. This phrase, in Christ, is the most important phrase in the book of Ephesians. The key for understanding the rest of this letter is that phrase, a right understanding of this new identity that we have in Jesus Christ. The right understanding of that should transform all of our lives. Every one of us, as we read these words where it says, in Christ, by faith in Christ, our walk and our lives should be different. He explains a little bit more in verse 4 through 6 about the, 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 the choosing and, and the, the plan that God had before the foundation of the world. There, there's a couple of terms that we use here in this first 14 verses, uh, predestination and an election and choosing. 
And, and these are known as controversial and tough topics in the church today, which if you take a step back and think about it, it's odd that a, a, a theology that promotes the glory of God would be considered controversial. Because in our culture today, we want to be the ones that receive praise and glory and honor. And the opposite of that is what Scripture says. It says God is the one who is worthy of praise. And that God is the one who is doing the doing. But it's okay for these things to be controversial because we've all wrestled with these things before. We've all approached Scripture and and read it through the lens of, I don't know if I agree with that or not. But what we do today as we look through these words is we let Scripture explain Scripture. We let Scripture explain the doctrine of salvation to us. Because these words are not man-made words. These are not man-made theologies or doctrines that were designed to cause some sort of confusion or division. The, The Holy Spirit penned these words through the human authors, Paul being one of them. They are tough to accept, and it's completely understandable. And Paul even sometimes alludes to the mystery of what salvation is. And Peter explains that Paul's writings are hard to understand. So for us, when we approach Scripture like this, it's okay if they're hard to understand as well. We take comfort in the fact that the original audience had struggles with these ideas as well. But just remember this. These are words from Scripture. These are words that are in Scripture that run from Genesis to Revelation. God's unfolding plan of redemption runs from Genesis to Revelation. It was not created some 1,500 years later after the Bible was complete. So Paul says in these first three verses, three, four, or I'm sorry, four, five, and six, that God shows us in him before the foundation of the world. He qualifies that statement at the end of verse five, and it says, to the purpose of his will. God chose us as his people because he determined that we would be his people. God chose us because he determined before that we would be his people. And what Paul is saying here is that should result in praise that erupts from us. A right understanding of God's choosing his people should result in us giving him praise. He's not so much concerned with the logic of election. He's not so much Uh, wanting the reader to understand every little detail about salvation. But what he really is wanting them to understand is that this has happened. This choosing on God's behalf has happened, and that should result in praise. That that should result in praise to God because the, the choice of us as his people is the clearest demonstration of his grace that we could ever receive. God chose us based upon his will before the foundation of the world. So this eliminates anything I could do to earn this salvation that he talks about in these verses. If we were chosen before the foundation of the world, that simply means before I got here. That that simply means before I could have uh, cleaned myself up or looked a certain way. Paul says, no, before the foundation of the world, we were adopted as sons. We love first because of what? He first loved us. The only reason that we can love God is because he first loved us. And if he first loved us, it was before we could have done anything to earn that love. It says the only uh, the, the ability to love God back is because he first enabled that ability to happen. I heard a quote once. I can't remember the author, but the quote went something like this. God can't stop loving us because he never started loving us. Does that make sense? 
Do you get what that means? That God, there was never a time where God said, okay, I love you now, and I'm going to start loving you now. God, before the foundation of the world, loved us. There was never a point where we could look back upon and he said, I love you now. He has loved us and he never started and he can never stop loving us. And look at what the end of verse four says. In love. That's why he did all of this, was in love. We're familiar with the hymn, All I Have is Christ. Here's the first part. It says, I once was lost in darkest nights, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And here it is. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. That's powerful. That's what's going on here in these first 14 verses of Ephesians. Because in love, he did these things. In love, he offered salvation to us. Because he loves us, he chose us. Let's move on to the next section. So in verse 7 through 10, we see this amazing purpose of redemption. Now, verse 7 is interesting. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. It's interesting because it speaks of a foundational truth to the Christian life, and that is the forgiveness that Christ offers for sinners. But it also speaks of another foundational truth that is often left out of the Christian life. The idea of redemption that Christ purchased from the cross through his blood. Out of all the terms in this chapter, this is my favorite one, redemption. Because redemption speaks to this setting free of something that that has come to belong to something else. Another definition says redemption involves the release of people, animals, or property from bondage, get this, through outside help. Their social, physical, or spiritual weakness makes redemption necessary. Only someone strong or rich can affect it. So God plays a leading role in redemption through outside help. And, and, and I'm confident that that actu- actu- um, excuse me, accurately describes the idea of redemption. That through outside help, we were redeemed in Christ. Not from something that I could have willed on my own, but that God's work was the one that redeemed all of us. Something on the outside had to help us. Look at Romans chapter 3 real quick. And we'll just look at a couple of verses. Romans chapter 3, in verse 21 through 26. Paul is familiar with this theme of redemption. He writes about it at length in various places, but one of, uh, one of those places is here in chapter 3 of Romans. In verse 21 it says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus himself spoke about this theme of redemption as well. As he was pointing to the cross, Jesus remarked, for even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, as a payment to redeem many people. 
this ransom term or this payment uh, would have been so clearly understood by the audience in the original context because slavery was so common during the Roman days. And, And the concept of the payment of a price to secure freedom for a slave was common. And so this background of this use extends all the way into the book of Exodus. And I'll read real quick. You don't have to flip there. But Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. So we're two books in, And the theme of redemption is already being talked about, that we needed to be redeemed a long time ago. We as followers of Christ today, under the new covenant, we have also experienced this redemption, a second exodus, if you will. Christ has purchased us from the curse of the law, that's Galatians 3, and we have been bought with a price, that's 1 Corinthians 7. That price was his blood that he gave on the cross as the means of securing that redemption. Christ did this by taking our place in receiving the condemnation and the punishment that was due to us because of our transgressions. In the larger context of Ephesians here, redemption is not only defined in terms of forgiveness, but it speaks of three things that we as believers are now free from. And he talks about this in chapter 2. There's three forces that we once belonged to because Ephesians chapter 2 says you were dead. You did not have the ability to respond. We did not have the the ability to respond. And there was three things that we were in bondage to. The course of the world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, the passions of our flesh, as Paul says later on. We have also been redeemed from darkness and alienation from God. Because we are foreigners is what the the term is to describe our relationship prior to Christ. That we we were sojourners. We were foreigners just wandering around outside of a right relationship with God. Ultimately, this redemption exempts us from condemnation on the future day of judgment. And you know what is great about redemption? Again, that phrase, in him. This is such a beautiful phrase because if it's in him, then that means it's not in me. Since it's in him, we are secure. Since it is in him, we can have confidence. Since it is not in me, I have no reason to boast whatsoever. It makes us humble. We can fall at the foot of the cross and cry out in thankfulness because it says according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. You could also translate that verse to say, on the basis of the abundance of his grace, which he poured out on us. Paul says, once again, it's the grace of God that is the reason for redemption and forgiveness. It is not the good things that we do in order to earn salvation. It is not by our works that we do in order to earn salvation. It says that God lavished his grace upon us. It is by grace. It is through faith out of the riches of his grace, and it will always be that way. Another comforting thing is as well, he says this grace is more than adequate. So therefore, 
You're not just trying to pick up crumbs of grace along the way. He says there is plenty of this grace to be received. And also another comforting thing, this abundant grace is not a possibility. It is not a potential. It is not something that might happen. But Paul says it is actual. God has already poured it out or lavished upon his people. This grace is beyond measure to cover the sins of all of us and is capable of redeeming and forgiving the worst of sinners, which Paul later tells Timothy that he was the foremost. And lastly, in 11 through 14, we see our inheritance. We have confidence in the promises of God because God is the one who made these promises. How often, if we ponder for a moment, has someone failed to deliver promises to us, whether it be a friend or a family member, a co-worker, an employer. Uh, We've all been let down at some point. And if we're honest with ourselves, we've been the ones who have broken promises to others. But there is one who makes promises, and guess what? Never breaks them. That's Jesus Christ. And the promise that he makes here in Ephesians 1, 11 to 14, is above all things. It is more wonderful than all things. It is more incredible and more exciting than anything you can imagine. In this section, Paul is just simply pouring out his heart in praise for God and the amazing work he has done. In the original language, verse 3 to 14 would have been one big sentence. It was just one big thought from Paul. He was so overcome with praise to God that he just starts, he can't stop. It results in praise to who God is. And he recognizes the magnitude of the sovereignty of God And that results in an abundance of praise from Paul. In the first part, we see God's master plan has been determined from ages ago. Chosen in him before the foundation of the world. That's what gives us our value. That's what gives us our sense of worth. We who love Jesus Christ and are in his church, we who have received him as Savior, we were master planned by God into the church before the world began. As mentioned before, we're not only chosen and we're not only forgiven, we're also redeemed. We are redeemed so he could give us an inheritance. It would have been one thing if God would have said, your sins are forgiven, period. But he he went a step further because he has forgiven our sins, but he's also pulled us out of that nature through his redemption. Paul Paul uses language to speak about the Christian life saying it's, it's, a, it's a race or a, a journey. He uses uh, running metaphors uh, because games like the Olympics would have been common during Paul's day. And as he's closing his letter to, to uh, Timothy as he is departing this world, what does he say? He says, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, this prize, this inheritance that Paul looked forward to. He now has the reality. Now, we would be here for a very long time if we were to talk about all the things that we inherit. But let me put it simply for you. This is really easy. We inherit everything. Everything that God has ever promised, we inherit. A quick list from one of the commentaries that I read says this. What are you looking for? Peace? That's in there. Love, grace, wisdom, eternal life, joy, victory, strength, guidance, All your needs met, power, mercy, forgiveness, righteousness, gifts of the Spirit, fellowship with the Trinity, instruction from the Word, truth, 
spiritual discernment, heaven, a room in the Father's house like we sung about, eternal riches, you name it. You see, because this is a great thought, because when you and I became a Christian, we are one with Jesus Christ. And when you are one with Jesus Christ, you receive, we receive everything that the Father has given him. Everything. We are heirs with Christ. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We are the inheritors of all the promises. So simply, when we're sharing the gospel with somebody throughout the week, when, when, when we present Jesus Christ to them, we present them everything. We really do. We're not just presenting them redemption or forgiveness or inheritance. We are presenting them with everything. And look at how he accomplishes all of this. Look at how verse 11 closes. According to the purpose of him. According to his purpose. He's the energy behind all of this. Right? So if, if he's the energy, then he's going to make it happen. It's not in my performance or in my studies. Those things are important, but ultimately, he's the energy behind all of this. And what's our response then? So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to get it, the praise of his glory. So why does God want all this glory and praise for himself? The reason why we have trouble understanding that idea of praising God and God being a jealous God and everything that we do runs through Jesus Christ The reason why we have so much trouble with that is because we can't understand this pure and holy God who is right to receive this glory because we're sinful and we seek it for the wrong reasons. So that when others seek it, we also know that they're seeking it for the wrong reasons because those people are sinful as well. But we can't allow those ideas to be projected upon God because God seeks it for the right reasons. He deserves this praise. So if that's the case, then the question that you might ask as you read through these things, as these big terms of choosing and electing and all these things, you might just simply say, what do we do then? When we're sharing the gospel with Christ or sharing the gospel of Christ with someone, do we just tell people, I hope you're chosen and maybe I'll see you in heaven one day and I'll cross my fingers for you? No, that's looking at the wrong side of salvation. God's responsibility is predestination. But what about our side? Look at verse 12 that we should be to the praise of his glory who first, and the Greek way of saying this is hoped in the Christ. The human part of it is that we have to place our hope in Jesus Christ. That's our responsibility. That's the balance. That's the, the, the balance to the tension of these two things. It's all of God, and yet we're a part of it as well. Then look at what verse 13 says. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and here it is, believed in him. That's the human side, right? That's that's faith in Jesus Christ, the belief in his word being true. The way that I heard it described to me once, and I can't remember, I want to say it was Spurgeon, but I don't know for 100% sure, so don't quote me on that. He describes these two doctrines as train tracks, and, and, and one of the tracks is man's responsibility, our, our, our charge to believe what Scripture says, and then on the other train track, it's God's sovereignty. And these two train tracks, they have to be there because only one will not get the train going. Both of the tracks have to be there. Our responsibility is to believe. Man's responsibility, God will work everything else out. God's sovereignty. And as you sit at the front of the train, you see it looks like the tracks come together almost. 
And that's the way of understanding that one day when we are in glory with Christ, we will receive a full understanding of what he is talking about. But we have to take comfort in the fact that both of these things are required. Man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. And God is so confident in this plan. Look at this. Look at the end of verse 13 into 14. In him we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is lit, literally the down payment upon our inheritance. And God's so confident that it's going to happen that he made a payment in advance in order to get us there. So if you're a believer, and we'll close here, we as, we as believers, we have the Holy Spirit that guides us and directs us and ultimately will get us into the arms of Jesus Christ one day. We have confidence in that. Those whom he chosen, he will not lose. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And he that comes to me, I will never cast out. If you're here today and you don't believe in Christ, take comfort in the fact that God is behind all of this, that God will chase you down and get you. It is not how clever anyone is or how big of terms that we use, those that preach and teach. It is God's work. And regardless of your past or your present or how you came in here today, salvation is by God and it is through God and it is for God. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to look a certain way in order to earn salvation because none of us can and none of us will. But thankfully, Christ was good enough. Thankfully, he was good enough to ransom us, to pull us out of that power in order that we might be redeemed and forgiven, in order that we might be holy and blameless before him, ultimately to the praise of of his glory. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the work of Christ. And we thank you that he who began that good work will see it forth to completion. We're comforted in the fact that salvation is by grace through faith and is not based upon anything that we could do lest any one of us should boast. Help us to fall at your feet and to recognize how worthy you are of praise and how amazing and awesome you are. As we close with song, help us to sing and to recognize how good and how uh, lovely and perfect you are, that we might treasure you and share that with other people. God, we love and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.